The Women's Health Project is produced on Gadigal land as well as other parts of Australia. In the spirit of reconciliation, Women's Agenda acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and future and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today making sure that it's embedded, it's part of business as usual. It's not a, a separate special topic, like now we're going to do something about people who are different. It's everybody is different. How do we ensure quality healthcare is delivered for all women in Australia, across all backgrounds, regions and contexts? How do we ensure an intersectional approach rather than one that benefits only certain groups? Australia is often touted as one of the world's most multicultural countries. As well as boasting the world's oldest continuous cultures, Australians identify with more than 270 ancestries and since 1945, almost 7 million people have migrated here. Our diversity is so often celebrated, but it's also, sadly, too regularly the very thing that is sidelined. In healthcare, we see the consequences of this play out regularly, especially for women. We see minority communities held back from accessing quality healthcare due to gaps in our approach and policies. My name is Angela Priestley and this is the Women's Health Project, a special podcast series created by Women's Agenda and supported by Organon, the recently launched pharmaceutical company dedicated to a better and healthier every day for every woman. On today's episode, we are going to discuss the importance of diversity and inclusion in healthcare and the ways in which we can protect the women currently left behind by our system's failure to safeguard and support everyone. Thank you for listening. This series has explored some of the numerous gender gaps in healthcare impacting women. But for many, these gaps widen again. Culturally and linguistically diverse women, women with disabilities and those within the LGBTQI plus community are just some of the groups that face additional barriers in healthcare policy and delivery. There are gaps in the care doctors and healthcare professionals deliver to different communities when a generalised lens is applied to all women. Meanwhile, a lack of access, a lack of employment opportunities, affordable housing and specialised support services are not typically seen as health issues, but they do ultimately contribute to negative health outcomes. The gaps for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are widely reported and known, but they continue to persist, stemming from a long history of racism and exclusion. Maternal death is rare in Australia, a country believed to be safe for women giving birth. But Indigenous women are three times more likely to experience maternal death than non-Indigenous women. Indigenous women are twice as likely as non-Indigenous women to have cardiovascular disease. Indigenous women experience higher rates of many women's cancers, breast cancer, ovarian cancer and cervical cancer. And now this is a particularly hard stat to cite. Indigenous women are 32 times more likely than non-Indigenous women to be hospitalised for family violence. We recently explored these gaps during a virtual panel session as part of the Women's Health at Work Summit from Women's Agenda. As the CEO of Indigenous Allied Health Australia, Donna Murray, said during the event, some of the gaps can simply stem from a lack of access to services, especially when it comes to vital screening. Unfortunately, the pandemic has made access even more challenging. So if you take breast cancer, 
rates as an example. The data will show us in 2018 that only 37% of Indigenous women aged between 50 and 69, which is my age group, participated in the breast screening program compared to 54% of non-Indigenous. But yet we're more likely to be diagnosed with breast cancer. So access to services is critical, to specialist services, but also making sure that it's culturally safe and responsive, making sure we have access to communication and educational resources that are appropriate, you know, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and our cultural diversity and our communities. The Honourable Linda Burney, the nation's first ever Aboriginal woman to sit in the House of Representatives, spoke at this virtual summit about the indirect policy options for helping to curb some of these figures and close some of these gaps. I have come to the view that we can have all the best DV policies in the world, we can have all the best child protection policies in the world, we can have all the best health policies in the world, But if you don't have the fundamental building block of decent housing, then the rest is a waste of money. And it's important for people living in cities, and I say this from a policy perspective and I'll stop here, to understand there is another world in this country and that world is poverty. It is 20 people living in a three-bedroom home. It is the lack of capacity to turn on tap and get clean water and... It is impossible to stay safe and healthy in an environment where the living conditions are intolerable. Mm. I think if there is one policy area that needs to be focused on that affects every other policy, things that Donna and Tanya have been talking about, I'm sure, it has to be adequate housing where you can keep your food safe and Mm. you can cook a meal and you can send your children to school healthy Mm. and prepared. And that's not the experience for so many of our people. So I would say in terms of women employment and health and outcomes, there has to be adequate housing because at the end of the day, the pressure with inadequate housing comes on women. So I did start by citing some statistics concerning Indigenous women's health. These dramatic gaps continue across other intersectional areas for women. Women living with a disability also experience higher rates of maternal death and diabetes than those living without a disability. COVID has forced many women with disabilities into their homes for months, if not years, given the added risks they face from the virus. Research on this is lacking in Australia, but internationally at various points in the pandemic, studies have shown the additional terrifying risks that those with disability face. In the United Kingdom, ONA data revealed there that women with disabilities under the age of 65 were 11.3 times more likely to die of COVID than non-disabled women. That figure drops to 6.5 for men with disabilities. We had to fully understand the run-on impact of COVID from women missing important checkups and screenings, from having surgeries and other procedures delayed and other consequences that come from lockdowns. These are issues that are likely to be impacting women with disabilities for even longer, as well as those with underlying health conditions that make them more at risk of COVID-19. These groups who may feel continue to be personally locked down as the Omicron variant surges. Meanwhile, Medicare is vital for accessing basic healthcare services in Australia. 
But what happens if you don't have access to Medicare? Cervical screening and the related national register have been critical to the success of Australia being on the path to eliminating cervical cancer. But getting to those screenings isn't always straightforward. For one, many women have been left out of the screening process altogether because they don't have access to Medicare or they don't have a trusted GP or healthcare professional or they haven't been given the health information they need in the language they need it to be in. These are issues particularly facing many refugees and asylum seeker women in Australia. To learn more about this, we spoke to Meryl Jones, a refugee health nurse. They may have temporary access to Medicare, but that drops in and out, or people may not have access to Medicare at all. So obviously, if you can't necessarily go to the GP, you may not be able to go to the hospital. But even things like PBS medications, which are subsidised if you have Medicare, means that those other costs of care can be really, really high. In certain states in Australia, the public health system is accessible to women seeking asylum who don't have Medicare, but that's not uniform across the country. So Medicare is just one barrier for women in this group, but there are plenty of other barriers, barriers that impact women across so many different communities. One such barrier particularly is the accessibility of services physically in terms of the infrastructure available to get there, as well as other factors such as the availability of interpreters at those facilities. Obviously, one of the major things would be not having access to interpreters, but it's also accessible health information. And I say accessible because just translating health information is not enough. Not everybody can read, not everybody can read in English, and not all medical words and concepts can actually be directly translated into other languages either. So having audio information, having information that is actually less text heavy with more pictures is really good because that's more accessible for people who speak other languages as well. We talk a lot sort of within our service when we're talking to other people about interpreters and trying to encourage other health professionals to think about why you would use an interpreter when, you know, there's a family member in the room who speaks great English. And it is often very easy to use the person, the family member in the room who speaks English rather than to engage a professional interpreter. But there are so many pitfalls with this. And You know, there are funded translating and interpreting services out there, which means that you are engaging somebody who is a professional, who has been trained to interpret and also doesn't come with their own agenda. And so there are really obvious dangers around using family members for interpreting. And so obviously one of the the most problematic examples might be if the partner of a woman in a relationship where there's reproductive coercion has her husband used as an interpreter for a reproductive health appointment, that woman is not going to necessarily get the care that she receives and is actually going to be forced into an even more unsafe situation. Merrill says all healthcare services need to look at more than just implementing policies for interpreting. They need to ensure those policies are actually working and that they have the interpreters available. And healthcare providers need to have the skills to work with interpreters. I don't think enough weight and consideration is given to health provision for people of refugee background. Obviously, for people seeking asylum, the fact that many of them are blocked from accessing Medicare and therefore blocked essentially from accessing public health services shows that you know we, we have a long way to go to be able to improve access for everybody. And really, when we get services right for the most marginalised in society, everybody benefits because they're actually more accessible for everybody. 
you know, if we if we put wheelchair ramps in, it doesn't mean that a building becomes inaccessible for people who don't use wheelchairs. Likewise, you know, if we make quality interpreting services available for people who don't speak English, it doesn't actually limit care for those who do. And generally, information and health services and ways of accessing appointments that are accessible to everybody or accessible to the most marginalised then are accessible to everybody. If we're going to get down to health dollars, it actually saves lots of costs across the health system because using interpreters, for example, reduces the risks of medical errors, which first and foremost, you know, is important for individual patients. But if we're going to be cold and hard-nosed about it, um, it also saves money across the health system as well. When we look at where women's health has fallen behind, the reality is that the issues all run deeper and can become more acute for women from marginalised backgrounds. And the issues run into broader social issues like to housing, to childcare and to access to employment opportunities. We spoke with Mary Patetsos, who noted how barriers to employment are an often overlooked layer of women's health and an issue that has come further to the fore during COVID-19. Mary is the chairperson for the Federation of Ethnic Communities Councils of Australia and she's on the board of directors at Northern Area Local Health Network. Access to affordable and accessible childcare is critical for families and and particularly for women who um, often find themselves as primary caregivers. So, I mean, I think a policy that, you know, government policy needs to address the supply of or the availability of affordable and accessible childcare so that women can actively participate in the workforce. Otherwise, women are trapped in poverty cycles because they can't gain employment. And, you know, most families now require two incomes. So, again, you, you know, if, if childcare is not available, you do get people trapped in workforce participation levels that doesn't meet their income requirements. I think that's the first thing. The second thing that I think we need to seriously look at is housing from a policy perspective. I mean, housing is really important for women. It's important for families to have a home. So I, I would certainly be looking at, again, affordable and accessible housing supply, both rental and home ownership, and making sure that families are able to purchase their own homes as a means of accumulating some capital wealth. So in the absence of that, affordable rental is critical and certainly access to housing when you are in stress is really important so that you're able to kind of find a house if you need one. So I think they're they're really two very critical areas. I think we have to look at the wage structure in Australia. We have to look at what we're paying our most vulnerable workers. Many women um, of cold background, of migrant refugee background, find themselves in low-paid work. And that low-paid work is highly stressful and very demanding work. So we need to make sure that our wage structure, you know, at least matches inflation and so that they don't fall deeper and deeper into kind of debt or, or cycles of, again, poverty that they can't get out of because their income isn't keep keeping up with their, the cost of living. You know, I think that they're, they're three really important ones. And on top of that, uh, you know, I, I, I think our tertiary education, both, both TAFE and universities need to make sure that women are able to participate fully so that they can um, maximise their earning capacity. So I'd certainly put training and education, whether it's vocational or university, um, up there in terms of policy responses for women. As well as that, you know, I think making sure that women are able to participate in leadership roles and making sure that women are represented across organisations and that 
refugee and migrant women are also there is a, is a critical step in terms of providing equity in our population. The truth of it is that COVID, and I'll go back to COVID because it has been all-encompassing in the last 18, 24 months, you know, has actually impacted women significantly, arguably the most because of the conditions that COVID's placed on us from a social, psychological, economic and financial perspective. Women's health has been impacted because of the, you know, the requirements of lockdowns and children, homeschooling, lack of permanent steady employment, you know, small business impacts. There's a whole range of reasons why women have been impacted on and that their health has been impacted on. Importantly, I think the issue of health in women is, is a really critical one because women have in some ways been the gatekeepers of our vaccination program. So we found that much of the conversations about shifting attitudes towards vaccinations was about communicating directly to women and making sure that they understood the importance of protecting their family and their friends and community by participating in a vaccination program. So there was a lot of work put into that. And there was also recognition that that needed to come from community leaders. So many women leaders in our communities became good spokespersons in regards to positive health messaging. So, I mean, I think there's always lots of things to do. I am a bit worried that, as we are generally, that women's preventative health measures and screening has dropped. And we need to go back and revisit some of that um, as soon as we're safe to be travelling through our health system again without doing it virtually. And on the back of that, well, I think the other positive thing is that we, what we found is with telehealth or, or us looking at different means of providing health, not face-to-face, that um, in fact, migrant and refugee women did embrace that, but it was age-specific. So, so obviously younger women readily embraced it and their mothers did um, and their grandmothers struggled. So what can be done to help close some of these gaps that we've discussed throughout this episode? First, we need a greater understanding of the gaps. We need to know that they are there. Then we need commitments, particularly dedicated government funding for closing these gaps and for monitoring how we're progressing on closing these gaps. There are shortcuts here, like such as tackling some of the issues in translation services that we've talked about as well as considering massive initiatives for addressing missed cancer screenings during the pandemic and aiming to initialise a game of catch-up that not only captures those who've missed out or put off appointments due to COVID-19, but also during that process, casting the net further to include those who may have been excluded altogether. So often, women are merely lumped into the same group when it comes to research, funding and support for healthcare. So there are some bright spots and some changes occurring. But more awareness is also required to make the changes that we need. What would an inclusive best practice Australian healthcare system actually look like? We put that question to refugee nurse Meryl Jones. I'm sure there are, there are many, as many different answers to this as there are health professionals and certainly as there would be consumers of the Australian healthcare system as well. But one thing I think that would really go a long way is actually to have a diverse and inclusive workforce where there were people from diverse cultural, gender, ability, age and other backgrounds all able to participate. And that should cut across the workforce as well. So there are currently lots of women of refugee background working as nurses and nursing assistants in aged care, but I don't see that many on hospital boards. So 
making sure that, you know, that inclusion doesn't just, there's not a ceiling for inclusion. And that inclusion goes all the way up. Because when workforce is, is inclusive, and our workforce is diverse, it's more creative, we're better able to, to see different perspectives, see different ways of solving problems. And our patients also see themselves reflected in the workforce as well. People may feel safer, accessing care from somebody who they think actually really gets them. So that's really important. I think another way that we could improve the way that we deliver best practice healthcare is to ensure that culturally responsive care is actually embedded into the curricula of health professionals education as well, uh, and including continuing education. So not just at university when you go off to do your initial qualification as a health professional, but continuing all the way through right up to you know your final consultancy exams, making sure that it's embedded, it's part of business as usual. It's not a, a separate special topic, like now we're going to do something about people who are different. Everybody is different. How will we make sure that care is delivered for everybody rather than stigmatising and othering and always saying, and now we're going to do this for the mainstream and what will we do for those different people? We really need to make sure that, you know, culturally responsive care just becomes business as usual and that equity and access is a focus that's really embedded in all of our health policies and also right down to the care that we deliver at the bedside as well. Mary Patetsos shares more on what would make a more inclusive healthcare system. She notes cultural safety especially, highlighting the risks a failure to account for these can have such as when it comes to vaccine hesitancy. An interesting example in the COVID space was um, poor immunisation rates amongst young refugees initially. And, you know, doctors couldn't understand it. I mean, why would they be resistant, for instance? And um, one of the reasons for that is that if you're a refugee out of a war-torn country and you've experienced real bombs, your risk threshold is a lot higher because you've faced a real enemy and, and you've you know, you've won, you've migrated, you've survived. So we pitch our messages to a middle-class white population that's lived a very safe life. If you're a refugee and you've experienced torture and trauma, it takes a lot to scare you into action. So you couldn't see COVID. So there was a need to communicate differently because just saying it's out there and you need to go and get a vaccination wasn't working. We needed to explain the impact of not getting it and treat the conversation differently because people's risk profiling, people's appetite to accept risk is embedded in their in their life experience. So if you're a refugee out of a war-torn country, you're likely to have a very high tolerance of risk versus, you know, a private school kid who's just kind of floated through life where nothing, <laughs> everything is scary. <laughs> Unless it's controlled risk, like flying out of a, you know, paying a lot of money to jump out of an aeroplane, <laughs> parasailing. You know, it's just, so health professionals need to understand the complete person when they're working with individuals and they need to understand the complete person when they're working with women as women interface with their families and actually become, um, well, are always, almost always still the custodians of the health of the family. So it's really important to make sure that we message and empower women to communicate back to families why things are important. There are options here. There are opportunities for change. But like we've discussed, we don't just need to understand the gaps We need to make sure that we're publicising those gaps, that we're setting targets for closing them, 
And that, of course, we have the funding, the procedures, the processes, the people, everything we need in place to actually make closing them a possibility. And one of those factors certainly does start with representation, ensuring that women from all sorts of backgrounds are included in the leadership processes that make healthcare happen. Ensuring women from all backgrounds are also included in the political process that puts the funding in place and the structures and the infrastructure to make these things happen. We've discussed a lot in today's episode. If you or someone you know has mental health concerns, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. If you or someone you know is experiencing family violence, you can contact 1800 737 732. The Women's Health Project is produced by Agenda Media, publisher of Women's Agenda. The project is editorially independent but made possible thanks to the support of Organon, the recently launched pharmaceutical company dedicated to a better and healthier every day for every woman. Thank you to our guests for joining us today and thank you to our producer, Alison Ho, for putting the show together. If you did like the show, you can help us out by leaving a review, which really helps others to find the show. You may also want to check out our previous episodes and subscribe to the feed. Thank you for listening.